0: Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, pg and Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.
1: You know, at the highest level, the reason I'm optimistic is because this shit works. With that said, I think the, the biggest question facing the distributed energy market right now is how fast is this going to happen? And look, I would be lying to you if I told you that I had a firm view on that. Our grid is falling apart. Wildfires, floods,
0: and more frequent extreme weather events routinely highlight the imperative of a distributed energy future, not just for resiliency, but to reach our climate goals. But incumbents, purposefully or not, are delaying that transition. And markets still don't value the qualities of distributed energy resources. Will we fully value DER's myriad benefits before it's too late? I'm John Engel, Content Director for Renewable Energy World. This week on Factor This, I'm joined by Tim Haidt, the COO and co-founder of Scale Microgrid Solutions. We had a wide-ranging conversation about the role of distributed energy for the grid of the future, the perils of scaling a climate tech hardware company, and what's holding back the Inflation Reduction Act. Tim shares how his time in the military mobilized him to fight climate change, why he's so optimistic that DERs will one day break through, and you need to hear his five tips for anyone starting a clean energy company. Here's a hint. Get smart on tax equity or find someone who is. This one's a bit longer than normal, but I promise it's worth it to stick it out to the end. That's all next on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. This episode of Factor This is sponsored by Hala Technologies, a Kohler company. Hala is changing the way complex microgrids are managed and operated with its edge control and optimization platform, which makes each asset in a system smarter while making the whole microgrid more efficient and resilient. The edge helps EPCs and developers simplify microgrid deployment through a flexible approach that ensures systems operate reliably while unlocking new revenue streams. HALA is a proud sponsor of the 2023 Grid Tech Connect Forum. Register now at gridtechconnect.com to learn more about HALA and the Edge platform and to join us in San Diego, California on February 6th. I'm excited to announce a new segment on Factor This, the Speaker Spotlight, a partnership between Factor This and RISE, women of renewable industries and sustainable energy, with the goal of elevating different voices in our industry. Each week, we'll feature someone from the RISE Speakers Bureau, And you can always check the show notes for a link to their profile. Now over to Gabrielle with our first RISE Speaker Spotlight.
1: The RISE Speakers Bureau is a public, searchable database of diverse, qualified speakers willing to publicly speak, present, and engage on renewable energy topics. This episode's featured speaker is Tasha McCarter, VP of Solar Engineering at RWE. Tasha's expertise spans across PV system design and engineering, project management and development, environmental justice, and more. Contact Tasha for a speaking engagement, view other speakers, or join the Speakers Bureau yourself by visiting riseenergy.org. That's W-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.org.
0: Tim Hade, thanks for joining the fact of this podcast. Good to see you. Good to have you on.
1: Thanks for having me, John. Big fan, man.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. Whether that's true or not, I you know I will take I will take any compliments, and I wish more guests would start that way. It would I think it's a good <laughs> primer for the conversation. This is going to be a good good chat. Start off with a little bit of your background. That's that's what we try to do each time we bring someone new on onto the show. For yep. You know, I think people probably who are listening to this have heard of scale microgrid solutions, but might not know too much about you. So why don't you start there?
1: Yeah, Um, you know, I guess the genesis for me was I was a military guy. So um, I went to the Air Force Academy for undergrad um, and then did six years of active duty service after that. Um, And I think for me, that was really the precipice of getting into climate change. Um, You know, one, one of the things I don't think people talk a lot about is the Department of Defense has looked at climate change as being really the predominant long-term national security threat for like 25 years at this point. Yeah. Um, so when I was in the Pentagon sort of, uh, you know, 2008, 2009 timeframe, um, this was something that was talked about openly um, in terms of being one of the biggest challenges that the United States but humanity more broadly faces um, in the coming decades. Um, that stayed with me. And sort of became the thing that I wanted to work on, so when I transitioned out of the military um, and went to grad school, uh, that was uh, really the thing I was kind of looking for is what's my angle to get into you know clean tech climate tech um, you know something that's going to make uh, a positive impact in addressing this problem um, And then out of that, I ended up going and working with my best friend from growing up and his dad at a place called uh, Rudox Engine and Equipment Company, which was a uh, originally sort of a backup standby generator provider, uh, predominantly back in the day uh, diesel. And uh, Ryan and Howard, who are my two co-founders in Scale, had this vision of transforming that company into a sustainable energy company. Um, and so we started really with uh, cogeneration. Cogeneration led us into solar storage. Um, that was really the precipice for you know breaking off and and starting scale microgrids. Uh, but we've kind of been working together ever since. And I think we're on year twelve of that That's partnership awesome. right now. So it's it's been it's it's been a journey. I'm
0: interested in how your your work starting out at the the cogen shop was shaped by you know the kind of Climate tech 1.0 bubble burst of the you know the early 2010s. So right as you're saying, I want to get involved in in fighting climate change and being in climate tech. The whole thing goes bust. Um, yeah. Did that influence your thinking of like, is this the right move, and how do I position myself to make sure that you know I'm not part of that whatever that next wave of
1: of belly up looks like. Yeah, not really, right? I mean, I think I've always tried to look at this from a big picture perspective, right? And obviously, you know, markets are cyclical, right? And so, you know, there are going to be boom times and there are going to be bust times. I think what doesn't go away is the underlying problem, right? And so, you know, one of the things, you know, that I actually really like about working in climate tech um, is, as much as it can be, I think it's pretty much a recession-proof business, right? Hmm. I think that you know, if you think about you know, sort of financial markets and and you know where the where you know where we are in cycles and things like that. I mean, throughout my career, right, there's going to be I don't know five or six bubbles, and there's going to be five or six recessions, whatever it might be. Um, and that's all well and good. That's going to happen with or without me. Um, I just try to sort of stay focused on the work, right? And I think our perspective on this for a long time is that if you want to build an energy company that matters, that's going to take decades, not years. Um, and so, you know, you got to show up every day. You got to make a little bit of progress every day. But you also got to understand that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And so I think, you know, at our company and sort of our philosophy in coming into this was, you know, have a long-term view. Right. Don't think about this in terms of, you know, the next six months, uh, the next year, anything like that. Really think about this over, you know, a decade, two decade time frame. And I think with that perspective, you worry less about things like clean tech 1.0 or climate tech 2.0 or whatever the case might be. Um, but you know, that that's that, that's a, a perspective I wish more people in the investment community shared. Um, and so there, there's obviously like the practical realities of having to be uh, a little bit more short-term focused as well.
0: Why don't you describe Scale's positioning? What it started out as, what it, what you hope to address in the market, what maybe it's evolved to in these last you know six seven years, just so people get a good idea of the work you're doing.
1: Yeah, so so I think if you go back to right before we we started Scale, I mean, I think what our experience in co-generation taught us was that distributed energy in a broad sense, was going to be a much bigger um, driver of electricity markets moving forward than I think many analysts were projecting, right? And I think for us, the real turning point and sort of what changed our mindset was Superstorm Sandy. So we were a power company that was based in northern New Jersey. The surrounding communities were devastated by Superstorm Sandy there are a lot of employees at our old company who were out of power for weeks. Um, and we saw the impact that that had on families and people and, um, you know, just the, the communities overall. And I think that really, like, sort of flipped the light switch for us that, you know, as we move forward into a climate future that has increasingly unstable weather and more extreme weather events, uh, our infrastructure is really not up for it. And... We kind of came into distributed energy with that perspective, right, that resilience is really the killer app of distributed energy. Um, at the same time, we were watching sort of technology curves really, really closely. And I think, you know, the, the second piece of that was we were pretty early adopters of the thesis that solar and storage were going to be the backbone of distributed energy moving forward. So you kind of put those two things together. We think distributed energy is a massive market that's undervalued. And we think solar storage is going to be the hub of the systems that build out that distributed energy network. Um, And that was sort of the precipice for scale microgrids, right? We wanted to start a company um that was, you know, centered on solar storage microgrids. Um, And then, you know, we thought that we were getting into a market that had uh, significant significant growth opportunities both in terms of you know financials but also in terms of impact um and that's kind of how we started and and that's where the journey of, of scale began um and that was what seven years ago so there's been a lot of uh, it's been quite a roller coaster ride since then but you know we're st- we're still here and we're still fighting
0: what made you so confident that batteries would follow that cost curve that solar has I mean because making that prediction in 2016, 2017, if it doesn't feel like that is that long ago, but for the energy storage space, it really is.
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that if that, that was definitely the most challenging sort of technology to get behind, let's call it like, I think when I really started to get interested in batteries was sort of 2012, 2013. Um, but that period, like, of 2012 to maybe 2017, um, there was a lot of mixed information out there about the trajectory of of batteries. I think the the number one thing that really changed it for me was Ryan Goodman, who is uh, the CEO of our company and one of my co-founders, got a Tesla, right? And um, as soon as I sort of maybe took my first ride in one of those early Model S's, um, I kind of understood that electric vehicles were going to be a thing, right? Um, Not necessarily because I thought the price point was there. I understood that, you know, there was a path to, you know, building an affordable, uh, you know, EV model anytime in the future. But because I realized that it was a better driving experience than uh, any internal combustion engine vehicle I'd ever been in. Um, And so I said, okay, this is a market. Um once, we, once I started to understand that, um, then you started to realize that the manufacturing capacity for lithium-ion cells was going to have to be there. Um, and that's when I started to look at some of the more aggressive analysts in the space um, in terms of what they were projecting from lithium-ion battery costs. And once you started to do that and you started to say, okay, I, like I have this broad thesis that says – I'm more on the side of the aggressive analysts in the space. Um, then it was just kind of, you know, arithmetic to get to the point where, hey, we're not that far away from lithium ion cells being able to deliver, you know, significant value um, in a stationary storage, you know, mechanism. Um, and so that that I think is kind of the precipice of us getting really interested in batteries and looking, them at, looking at them as a viable, you know, power uh Sort of asset and uh, yeah, you know I think even we were we were pretty aggressive with this, um, but we super underestimated how quickly this was going to happen um, and so you know I think the the you know last five or six years for us, we really thought you know I don't know go back 2016, 2017, our biggest concern from a risk standpoint was we were being too aggressive. Um, when it came to our projections of where lithium, matter, lithium ion battery prices were going to be. And it turns out we were being too conservative, right? So I think it's just uh, sort of outperformed everyone's expectations over the last, you know, five, six years.
0: Hey, Factor This listeners, it's John Engel. I wanted to let you know that you can now watch every new episode of the Fact of This podcast on YouTube. Just search Renewable Energy World and leave a rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening. This is a tangent, and I don't want to backtrack too far, but just given your experience in the in the military, and you were talking about DOD's um, recognition years and years ago of you know climate change being a real threat. Um, some of the some of the coolest microgrid work is is happening with the DoD. Did you have any touch points with that, or or notice that was happening while you were in the mix, just out of curiosity?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, look, I think um, full disclosure, right? So, scale microgrids doesn't do any federal procurement work at present. Uh, we've looked at it from time to time, but it, administratively, it's not really something that we're set up to do right okay. now. Um, for anyone who has experience in federal procurement, I have a lot of respect for you because that's a puzzle I've never been able to figure out. Amoresco um,
0: does a lot of work in that space. Yeah,
1: you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big part of the ESCO business, right, is, is yeah. servicing the DOD and federal government clients. And so there are businesses that are set up to sort of navigate that process, and, and we're not one of them, right? With that said, I mean, um, microgrids specifically are... I mean, you can make the argument that militaries globally, but specifically the US Department of Defense is gonna drive the microgrid market over the next decade, two decades. And I wouldn't disagree with you, right? I mean, I've talked to um, you know, some of the, you know, leaders of, you know, the energy transformation inside the Department of Defense. And I think their internal estimates are that the Department US Department of Defense is gonna represent roughly 50% of the microgrid market over the next decade globally, right? Um, and so it's a, re- it's, it's a really, really big thing. And I think the reason for that is you know, they looked at, obviously, military bases as mission-critical assets. And they came up with a formula for pricing in resilience, at least at a high level, um, and, and figuring out what the cost of an outage is, both in terms of dollars, but also in terms of capabilities. And they basically came to the assessment to say, every military base needs to have a microgrid. We need to be able to generate our own power. This is a threat to our ability to perform our mission, and we're going to fix that by deploying microgrids. Um, I think what's really interesting about that is I don't think that that perspective should really be different for any mission-critical industry on Earth, right? Whether you're a hospital or you're a data center, you're a grocery store, I think you should basically have the same perspective on that, which is that resilience is super important to our core mission of servicing our customers, and we need to do something about it. Um, I look, I think realistically, right, DOD has a different way of looking at economics than, you know, traditional private sector businesses. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, ultimately over the next 10, 15 years, a lot of mission critical industries are going to come to similar conclusions. And that's really what's going to drive microgrid proliferation in the CNI space.
0: Well, and the DOD has the ability to create that like quasi market, like, and we'll probably get into that a little bit more about how markets um, value distributed energy and microgrids yeah. and resiliency and all these these variables that don't factor in yet or get rewarded yet. But something with the scale and and pocketbook of, you know, the United States Department of Defense can do that. Yeah,
1: ab- absolutely. Right. And I think, you know, just to be candid about this, right. I mean, I think that's part of our calculus when we think about the trajectory of the industry that we work in moving forward. Right. And so, you know, whether or not we do work with the Department of the of Defense now or moving forward, it's a driver of the market, right? And so yeah. what we what we know is that there's demand for the types of projects we build. Um, because, you know, again, the Department of Defense is committed to doing this. It makes sense. We don't think they're going to backtrack on that. Um the projects that they are building have been extremely successful for the most part. Um, and so this is a real thing. So you kind of, as an industry, have this anchor tenant that's not going anywhere. Um, that's going to drive at least, you know, a portion of the growth for the market moving forward over the next 10, 15 years. And then, you know, we're obviously on the aggressive end of the spectrum when we think about, you know, how how fast the CNI sector is going to kind of pick up that mantle. Uh, but you put those two things together. And I think, you know, the DOD definitely sets the floor for us as an industry that's a pretty high floor.
0: I've covered, um, you know, it's a, a separate story, but DOD's um, support in scaling these, you know, capital-intensive sectors is, is crucial to stuff, like even geothermal. Like, there's some really cool stuff happening in geothermal with DOD and the um, U.S. Department of Energy and this recognition that that 24-7 clean energy resource is valuable, whether or not the market gets that yet. Um, so there's just some cool stuff happening there and I'll, I'll include a link in the the show notes
1: for sure. Right. And, And look, I think, um, this is happening in a lot of ways and I'm happy to see this, right. But just to be clear, right. I mean, I think DOD has a responsibility to be driving, uh, innovation in the energy sector overall, right? Like if you get back to that original thesis and I don't disagree with this, that, you know, climate change represents the biggest national security threat to the United States over the coming decades. Um, You know, DOD needs to be investing in technologies and mechanisms and systems to help address that. Right. So, you know, again, I'm not part of these conversations, but my guess would be that, you know, some of the higher ranking people in Washington, D.C. are sitting down and having exactly this conversation. Right. Which is, on one hand, we have to prepare the military to deal with the implications of an increasingly unstable, um, you know, geopolitical situation, largely driven by, you know, climate. Um, But on the other hand, can we use the buying power of the DOD to help, you know, mitigate this problem, help make it better? Um, And that's why I think, you know, they're a big player in driving a lot of these more innovative projects. I think if anything, right, they should probably be, you know, doing more. Um, but, you know, that's a conversation for a different day.
0: Let's round out that market conversation then before getting on to getting yeah. into some other topics about, you know, just scaling a, a clean tech platform and all of that stuff that I find super interesting. But how do, how do the markets currently value distributed energy and your work with microgrids and what challenges does that present in scaling these solutions when we're still waiting for
1: some catch up? Yeah, look, I mean, I don't think there's a consensus in the markets right now, right? I mean, I think everyone at this point understands that, you know, locally cited distributed energy resources are going to be a thing, right? It's not going anywhere. I think there's a lot of disagreement about what the growth curve is going to look like. And I think ultimately, a lot of that comes back to uh, energy is not a free market right? This isn't Mm -hmm. driven purely by like economic principles of supply and demand. Um, We have, you know, regulated monopoly utilities in this country that have traditionally owned 100% of the power generation market. Now you have, you know, private sector companies, that are coming up um, and trying to disrupt that um, via the deployment of distributed energy resources at a very high level. I think my view on it is certainly that distributed energy resources and the macro grid can work in concert to provide a better value proposition to end-use consumers. And so we should work together on this. But look, like the practical reality of it is that some utilities have that perspective and some very much don't. And so I think when you you know talk to a lot of market analysts where a lot of the um, divide is, Is really how quickly is um, the the policy and regulatory side of this going to catch up with the technology curve, right? Um, So you look at situations, right? Like probably the most high profile example of this over the past year has been the Nem three proceedings in California, Mm -hmm. right? And you know, look, I think what there's valid arguments on both sides of that equation. But ultimately that became kind of a political decision, right? It wasn't about like, hey, we have a perfect equation for calculating the value of distributed energy resources. and we're just going to apply this equation and then like let the market do what it does. Um, you know it was a political process, right? And I think traditionally, you know if you're bearish on distributed energy resources, one of the reasons to be bearish is to say, well, yeah, a lot of these decisions are ultimately political in nature, and utilities are so much better at politics than distributed energy resource companies, right? And so if we're betting on who's going to be able to like game the system the right way, we're gonna bet on, you know, utilities and traditional power providers a hundred times out of a hundred. And that's where you kind of get the bears in the market. Um, and then when you look at the bullish side of it, it's like, yeah, but that system isn't working so great, right? And so um, you know, as we electrify everything and electricity becomes an even more important input to the way society works, um, people are going to have higher requirements for reliability, resilience, sustainability, cost. Um, and, and so they're going to, you know, it's sort of going to be a bottom up, you know, driver of adoption of distributed energy resources. There's nothing that like politics are going to do to stop that. That can only like sort of change the trajectory Um, And so, you know, those are kind of, I think, the two sides of the spectrum. And the reality is probably somewhere in the middle.
0: Well, and maybe this is a a point somewhere in the middle, but we talk about incumbents all the time in the energy transition. And usually we're talking about, you know, fossil fuel generation or or whatever um, versus clean energy. But but there's also the the issue of incumbents with monopoly utilities as well. And you're talking about like the, the sheer manpower of some of these corporations. You go to one of these proceedings and it's like. 90-10 90 10 utility yeah. lawyers bodies just and that's an overwhelming force for uh, a public utility commissioner to to you know that's that's all the content they are receiving is from these very well-paid people and they lean on you know repetition and they they just keep firing they're not giving up this ground so i think i i, I do want to drill down into that a little bit more about why you are optimistic and you seem pretty optimistic just by nature of know what you're working and hoping to accomplish. Our last episode of this podcast was about, you know, North Carolina passed a very significant um carbon emissions reduction goal in 2021 with GOP led legislature. It seemed like the unthinkable given the political times. And now a year and a half later we have Duke capping solar interconnections at at yeah. three three gigs over three years and and making those targets Almost unattainable by every mark, and so you still have this significant barrier in the utility in the grid operator in the in the regulator to overcome. Why are you optimistic that that bottom up uh, momentum will work and soon enough, really?
1: Yeah, look, I think like the root of my optimism is I'm on the front lines of this, right? And so you know, at the highest level, the reason I'm optimistic is because this shit works, right? So when we build a system for our customers, you know in almost every case they save money they improve their operational resilience they reduce their greenhouse gas emissions um and they have a cool story to tell right they they like our customers like building these projects and they like what they look like when they're done and they like what you know how they sort of fit into the the facility and things like that so i think the reason i'm optimistic is cuz our customers like this stuff right mm-hmm. so over time and this is kind of how we're building our business right we build one of these and Our customer has a positive experience and he tells his friends and then we build some for his friends and they like it and they tell their friends. Um, And so look, like over time, right, over a long period of time, that's why I'm optimistic because I think distributed energy resources provide value that really appeals to people, right? Um, At the same time, you know, we as an industry are every single year getting better and better and better at this. And there's, you know, such uh, an amazing amount of talent coming into our space and, you know, you just kind of look at the trajectory, we're not stagnant either. So like the value that we're providing today is going to be better next year, it's going to be better the year after that. Um, And and so, you know, I think that's the reason for optimism. You know, with that said, I think the, the biggest question facing the distributed energy market right now is how fast is this going to happen? And look, I would be lying to you if I told you that I had a firm view on that, right? I think ultimately... You know my view on the utility role of the distributed, you know, distributed energy transition is in an ideal world they would embrace it, right? Because ultimately I think that there is a way that utilities can work with distributed energy providers while maintaining profitability and fiduciary responsibility to shareholders, and the outcome of that is going to be a better system for everyone. That's what I wish would happen, but. You know the worst case scenario is they can delay this, right? And I think doing so in a lot of cases would be to their detriment, right? So you know look, there this is no secret, right? I think when you have um, you know states, regions, territories that are having significant problems with their existing grids, there are a lot of customers right now um, who are just getting off the grid, right? That's a thing yeah. that's happened in the last like two, three years. And surprisingly, they're doing so at not much of a premium to existing utility rates. And so, look, ultimately, I think, you know, the the stick, right, the carrot for utilities is kind of like, look, we're all trying to solve the same problem. Let's do it together. It'll be a better outcome for everyone. But the stick is, look, if you don't do this, people are going to leave. And if people leave, that means that the fixed costs of running the grid are going to be distributed over a smaller population which means the smaller population is paying higher rates, which means more people are going to leave, right? And generally speaking, that's, you know, I don't know, been talked about for the last 20, 30 years as the utility death spiral. Um, I think if you look at sort of what's happening in the market today, that would be a concern of mine if I was a utility executive, right? Um, And so ultimately, I think we're in a position right now, and if utility executives aren't in this position, they will be over the next 10 years, where um, it's a lot better and it's much more in their best interest to work with distributed energy providers to create sort of the best utilitarian system than it is to try to fight against them and lose market share. Right. And so that, you know, ultimately, I think over time, like cooler heads will prevail and we'll end up building the best system and like the market will work the way the market's supposed to work. But you know, that's, that's where all this climate stuff gets really tricky, right? Because there's also a timeline on this. And so do I think that's going to happen over the next 10 years? I hope so. But yeah, there are things that utilities can do to delay proceedings two, three, four years just by filing some paperwork. And when you're talking about, you know, the, the, the trend line that we have to be on, meet, you know, our Paris goals or whatever the case might be, you know we don't have like years to waste, and that's kind of what's happening
0: right now. Can you take me inside some of those conversations that you're having with customers? I mean, maybe even preferably new customers who are just now getting interested in these kinds of solutions. Uh, one of the most popular episodes that we've done on this podcast was just a couple of weeks ago with um, PowerFlex CEO Raphael De titled yep. "Why You Know the CNI Industry Is Bound to Explode in 2023." Basically, what you were just saying, and you're your optimism after speaking with these these customers. What are they telling you and why are they getting so engaged now? And are you hearing from maybe some non-traditional players that you wouldn't have expected to get a call from maybe even two, three years ago?
1: You know, I think the market's evolving rapidly, but like this isn't without precedent, right? And I think what's happening with distributed energy resources is pretty similar to the way a lot of new technologies evolve, right? Which is, you know, I think until very recently maybe like the first part of 2021 mid 2021 we were still in the early adopter sort of market right and so you know microgrids you know distributed energy as uh, general as a sector uh, you know I think really only appealed to people who had um a real interest in this stuff right so you know it wasn't it, it, it was new, it was novel, it seemed complicated, right? Like people weren't doing this just because it was the easy thing to do. They were doing it because they had like an underlying interest, right? And so really your job as a distributed energy company was to try to find those people, right? Like we always talked about it internally as like we're trying to find a needle in a haystack, right? It's not good enough to just go to a facility and meet a facility manager or an executive, and like pitch them on economics, operational resilience, and sustainability. Um, they also have to like have an interest in doing this, or, you know, it's gotta, it, it, there's gotta be some sort of emotional factor that goes into this. Um, and that was really the world we operated in. I can't say like a precise date, but over the last like year and a half, two years, we've kind of, you know, hit that inflection point. Where now we're getting into, you know, I think you know more steady state growth, right? Where now there's enough of these systems out there, and this is a big enough thing that you know it's not viewed as like new or novel or crazy. It's viewed as like a realistic option that that folks need to be considering. I think there are a few drivers of that, right? Obviously, um, from a public standpoint you know, what's happened with the IRA um, has driven a lot of interest in the sector. We can talk about like the pros and cons of the IRA, but, you know, it's on the front page of the newspaper, right? And, And people are hearing about this and they know there's money out there for it and they know there's incentives and things like that. So I think that's bringing a lot more folks to the table. And then look, I think ESG is another huge driver of this, right? I mean, I think, you know, pretty much every business right now is at least having conversations about what they need to be doing from an ESG standpoint um, in order to, you know, make sure that they're a viable business over the next decade, two decades. And uh, and so I think you put the two of those things together coupled with sort of the maturity curve of distributed energy, and, and we're just getting to a point now where, you know, I think uh, for the first time in the history of our industry, uh, demand exceeds supply, right? So now we're moving into this next phase of of industry growth where it's like, all right, we convinced all these people to to build these things. Like, how do we do that, right? How do we go from building, you know, five projects a year to 50 projects a year or 50 projects a year to 500 projects a year? Um, And look, I think that's the challenge for, that's going to be the biggest challenge for our industry over the next decade, right? Is not necessarily, you know, convincing people to buy these things, but being able to deliver them. which, you know, again, in today's macroeconomic environment is definitely not easy.
0: Well, and another test of maturity is probably that, you know, the calls that you're getting that really aren't starting with climate or, or ESG. Like we know those people are engaged in care, like you said, that, that emotional link. But it's the calls where it's all about resilience. Like we, we are, we are yeah. contacting you because we want to keep the lights on. And it's great that, you know, batteries and, and solar panels will, will help reduce carbon emissions. But that's not really our game. Like, it, are you, do you have those conversations?
1: Yeah. You know, look, I think when you look at this from like a commercial and industrial standpoint, I think if resilience is your only concern, um, the best option is still a diesel generator. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, not necessarily because it's best in terms of performance or economics or anything like that. It's just like the simplest thing to do. Right. There's a ton of precedent for it. Like it's easy for the most part, um, it's not necessarily the best or the most robust, but if that's the only thing you're worried about, I think that sector of the market is still opting in diesel generators. And look, like if you look at, you know, I don't know, the public filings of Generac or something like that, right, that'll support that claim. Um, but look, I think what's happening is just generally as a society, we're becoming more concerned about resilience, right? And a good portion of the people who are becoming more concerned about resilience are thinking about, okay, I don't necessarily want to do this with a diesel generator that's going to contribute to the problem that I'm trying to solve, right? Both from like a practical, like good human standpoint, but also from a business standpoint. You know, am I going to invest in an asset that I might not be allowed to use in 10 years? You know, things like that. Um, And so I think, you know, what you're seeing is a, a, you know, a growth in caring about resilience overall. And then a significant subsector of that market, you know, wanting to do this in a more environmentally responsible way. And that's what's really, you know, sort of driving growth in, in I think, the CNI micro grid sector, but I would say distributed, energy, you know, sustainable distributed energy resources overall.
0: Let's get into some of the nuances just of leading a, a climate tech company and, um, you know, the challenges associated with that, especially given that you're not just a climate tech entrepreneur, you're, you're in the hardware game too, which is... Uh, capital in- it's capital intensive. It yeah. may be uh, a little more difficult for you know the institutional investors to to understand when you're when you're pitching it. Take us back to the beginning. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced? And if you could tell yourself anything, you know, seven years ago, based on what you know now, what kind of hurdles would you try to avoid or or get over more easily?
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, I think you know the 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 simple answer to your question is um, raising money. Right. I think the biggest barrier for us when we started this company was raising money and it was a brutal process. Um, so, look, I you know, I guess to expand upon this. Right. Um, we were in a really fortunate position when we started this company. Right. We came off a successful exit from our last venture. We had a little bit of cash. We had some good connections and like friends and family folks that were able to float us for a little while. But running a business like this is expensive, right? And I think ultimately what we found is that, you know, we could go pitch venture capitalists on this and, you know, get them excited enough to offer to write, you know, a $2 million check or a $5 million check or a $10 million check. But if you really want to build a business like we envision building, you have to be able to raise it like, you know, the $100 million plus level. And that was really, really, really challenging, right? And I think, you know, ultimately, the biggest reason that's challenging is because people who write $100, $100 million checks aren't traditionally early-stage investors, right? So for us, you know, ultimately, our journey was, you know, we pretty quickly came to the realization that, like, the venture community wasn't going to be the right fit for us, and we were going to have to go down, you know, the private equity infrastructure fund route, then the question be you know became, okay, how do we kind of um you know fake it until we make it in a sense, right? Like how do we how how do we convince, you know, folks that are looking at this that we're not, you know, an early stage company? And ultimately the only reason we the only way we could figure out how to do that was to build some projects, right? Um, in order to, you know, at least in our experience, and this is now, you know, four or five years ago, um, the key key to convincing sort of, you know, the private equity and, um, you know, infrastructure community to take you seriously was having assets in the ground that were operational so you could kind of prove the execution, right? No one really disagreed, I don't think, with, like, the ideas. The question was just, like, can you guys actually build this stuff? Um, And so, you know, I think that was the hard part for us. And so we ended up... um, Begging and borrowing from anyone who would give us money to build our first few projects. Um, You know, they're like literally, you know, calling people that we knew had like a personal tax appetite and trying to get them (laughs) to invest in, you know, microgrids at warehouses and things like that. Um, and, and, And again, right, like we were very, very fortunate. And I think luck had a lot to do with it, that we were able to pull that off. Um, And then, you know, for us, right, that ultimately led to some introductions to Warburg Pincus, who has been our capital solutions provider for the last five years, and I don't have enough good things to say about them. Like, they're awesome to work with, and they've helped us really grow and scale this business and put ourselves in a position, I think, for better things to come. Um, But look, you know, they they weren't going to take us seriously until we had some assets in the ground. And so I think that was really the challenge for us was, figuring out, like, how do you raise that first $10, $15 million that we needed in order to deploy some projects? And, uh, you know, I don't even know what I would tell myself if I went back, right? I think what I would tell myself is, like, you basically have to do what you did, right? Which is just, like, hustle, beg, and borrow. Um, and, and, like, it's going to work out in the end. Um but look, I think, you know, one of the things I talk a lot about when I talk to certainly policymakers or people in the investment community is if we actually want to solve climate um, and and leave a better world for our kids and our grandkids than we have, we have to lower the barriers to uh, entry for entrepreneurs in the space, right? Um, I mean, look, like... If I had to do this again, was it a good risk-reward trade-off from a financial standpoint? Probably not, right? Like, the odds were really, really against us. And even as I, like, sit in this position, I'm on the other side of it, and it's, like, kind of worked out, like, it probably wasn't a responsible bet, right? <laughs> we, we we ended up doing it because it mattered to us. And I don't know, like, we're pretty overconfident, <laughs> I guess. Right. Like We we had a lot of belief in our team and and our capability. It kind of worked out. But I think as we move forward and we think about what we really need to do in order to execute at the scale that's required to, to, you know, execute the energy transition, um, not everyone should have to go through that. Right. And there has to be a path to, you know, getting that first 10, 15 million dollars that you need in order to, you know, create proof of concept, and really get you know traditional institutional investors interested in doing this stuff. And look, I think it's getting better, right? Like you have programs like ARPA-E that are mm-hmm. doing a lot of this stuff. You know, private sector you know things like you know breakthrough ventures, right, and things like that. Um, so there, there's there's more you know opportunity today than there was five years ago, and hopefully that trend continues. But I think from like a macro standpoint, that's really something that. Um, We need to focus on and, um, you know, I've talked about this a few times, but I think, you know, if you look at, you know, precedent for being able to execute such a transition in a short amount of time, just look back 30 years, the internet, right? The internet didn't exist uh, when I was a kid and now it runs every aspect of my life. And I think a big reason for that is the barriers for entrepreneurs who are trying to get into tech or internet, you know, companies was very, very, very low. Right. And so you had a lot of, you know, really, really smart, ambitious, creative people. And it wasn't a crazy bet to say, hey, I'm going to spend six months working on this in my garage. And like, if it doesn't work out, I'll go do something else. Whereas if you're, you know, a climate tech founder, still today, you basically got to be able, you you basically got to be willing to risk it all, knowing that this is going to be multi-year and you're going to lose basically all your money if it doesn't work out. And uh, that's a tough trade off for people to make.
0: That is tough. Um, what What are some of the the challenges unique to what you guys are doing in like the hard tech space versus all the software offerings and the, you know, the spack spree that we saw over the last you know, yeah. I guess two years, but it slowed and maybe fizzled a bit.
1: I uh, you know to be candid, right? I think our biggest challenge right now is supply chain, right? And um, it's a it's a fucking nightmare, <laughs> right? I, um, I I you know I think. One of the things that we did not fully appreciate when we were, you know, in the earlier stages of this business was how fragile the supply chain was, right? And so, listen, like, some of this is just bad timing, right, in terms of, like, we were really ramping up our business, and then COVID happened, right, and then, you know, everything that's happened subsequently to, um, you know, make navigating supply chains really, really um, complicated. But look, I think in general, right, like if you look at our energy infrastructure, at least, um, the supply chains that we're utilizing to build all this stuff are kind of a house of cards, right? Like there's certain breakers that we use in our switchgear that are built not in China, but in like one city in China, Right. <laughs> And so like when that city goes into zero COVID lockdown, that breaker doesn't exist. And you can't build a switchgear without that breaker. So now like the global switchgear market is stagnant because like that, you know, there's nowhere to get this breaker on earth, right? It's not a matter I don't th-
0: of- I don't think I realized that it was that acute in some situations yeah, that yeah, it like it, comes down it, to it, this it, single factory.
1: Yeah, it's, it's wild, right? And so, you know, you, you, start, you start like to understand this stuff. Um, and I've I've learned you know I don't know so much more about supply chains over the last ten years or two years than I than I knew previously, but it, it, it's it's really a complicated situation, right? And then you know that that same sort of principle I think applies to like the critical minerals and and raw materials that we need to build this stuff, right? So you think about like something like seventy percent of the world's nickel supply comes from Russia, which we now have we can't buy nickel from Russia for obvious reasons. Right. And so like things like that, where, you know, we kind of built this like global supply chain network, um, for, for good reasons. Right. I mean, I think like, I don't know, 10 years ago, I was a big fan of like the global supply chain. Right. And <laughs> thought that there was changed good a little bit, but yeah, like we didn't, we didn't really think about the fact that, Oh, like we can't control what, China does, or what Russia does, or what Australia does, right? And so, if we're a hundred percent dependent on them for some of these, you know, inputs to our system, like what do we do? And um, and so that's, I think, the phase that that we're in right now, right? Is we're really scrambling to figure out how to fix that. And look, there are like a lot of positive developments. I think, you know, one of the things that I'm super excited about, and like, I don't know. V- you know, I think is going to be great for the United States is we're bringing a lot of the manufacturing capacity that we need to build this stuff back to the US. Um, and I think that's going to be a big driver of our economy. It's going to create a lot of high paying jobs, right? It's going to be good for society overall. Um, but that's going to take time, right? I mean, you don't just like factories don't just start working, right? It takes a while to build them and it takes a while to tweak them and, and that kind of stuff. And so, You know, I think over the next, you know, our view is like over the next five years, that's going to be the biggest challenge for our business is navigating, you know, very, very complex supply chain problems. And, you know, we're trying to adapt on the fly to be able to do that at a really high level. It's not easy to do.
0: We've waited long enough to dive into the Inflation Reduction Act. And I told you in a, a call before <laughs> we recorded this that, like, I'm getting kind of tired of the conversations about the IRA, not because it's not significant, oh, no. but they're just like all the same. And it's the big infrastructure guys going like, this is great. This is game changing. It is. And we all acknowledge that. But there are nuances to realizing the benefits of the, the IRA and who it is meant for that I don't think we've really gotten a chance to talk about yet as a collective, um and you know it's it's naive to think that this conversation will move that needle in any one way or direction but it is something that you interests me yeah I mean I can try um there it <laughs> isn't a void I know some people listen to this and and we thank you for that so how does that impact maybe a smaller operator like yours as you're trying to take advantage of you know this historic climate bill was it meant for for people like you and for companies like yours. Yeah,
1: I mean, look, I, I, I think to start off with, right, I will say that um I tried to do everything I could possibly do to advocate for passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. And on balance, I think it's the most important climate legislation that's ever been passed globally. Um, so I have like ninety-nine percent of what I think is it's a very, very good thing. However, um, yeah, I think people are getting carried away, right? And I think there's this perception. Um, both in Washington and in the markets, they're like, "Oh, we passed the IRA, and now all the problems are solved. Like, you guys just go out and build all the shit you need to build, and like, we're good." Um, and that's very much not the case, right? I think if you think about it from like a practical standpoint, and we can just talk talk about this in terms of like one provision. So you know, give or take, right? The Inflation Reduction Act is four hundred billion dollars over ten years, um, for for climate in terms of climate impact money, um the vast majority of that is tax credits, right? And monetizing tax credits is a disaster, right? Like it is the most efficient, inefficient way to fund something that I've ever seen in my life. So, I mean, we have an entire investments team. I mean, to to explain to you like how complicated this is, I've been dealing with this stuff for 10 years. I don't consider myself to be like, a dumb person, right? <laughs> um, I've been doing this stuff wh- for ten years. I have no idea how tax equity works. Like literally, no idea. If you gave me a tax credit, I could not figure out how to get you a any portion of a dollar for that tax credit. Um, it's insanely complicated. So we have to. We have like a whole division of our company, right? That literally just works on this. They work on you know tax equity monetization and how we're gonna you know structure things in the right way. And we're in a position, very luckily, where we have the resources to be able to do that. But, you know, most developers in our space don't, right? And so, yeah, it's great that we've allocated all this money to tax credits. Um, Monetizing those tax credits is a very, very, very difficult thing to do. And it's a very inefficient process. And quite frankly, like the market for it isn't great right now. Right, I think you you know everyone's got to remember in in
0: terms of providers like tax equity shops.
1: Yeah, you just kind of put two things together, right? I mean, I think generally speaking, when you look at the big companies that really have tax, you know, tax appetites, they tend to strategize. You know, they put like tax strategies in place for like ten or fifteen years. So in two thousand seventeen, with you know what's widely become known as the Trump tax cuts, right like the corporate income tax basically got cut in half. Mm-hmm. So you had all these people that had bought tax credits thinking that they were going to utilize this stuff for 10, 15, 20 years. You now just had like, who were swimming in tax credits, right? And so now you're going back out to those people and saying, hey, I have these tax credits that I need to get money for. And it's like at the highest level, just a supply and demand problem, right? There's a lot more supply of tax credits than there is demand for those tax credits And so that means you're trading at, you know, whatever, 50, 60, 70 cents on the dollar, right, which is problematic for two reasons. One, Like the biggest problem isn't that you're getting a huge discount on a dollar of a tax credit. The biggest problem is it's inherently unpredictable, right? So if you think about like how we actually go about building a project, right, we go in, we do the initial feasibility assessment, the output of that feasibility assessment is a model, Right. And so we say, like, okay, you know, the solar panels are going to cost X, and the battery is going to cost Y, and the switch here is going to cost Z. And we put all that together, and then we create a pro forma for the customer, and this is how much money you're going to save, and this is how much money you're going to pay us, and this is why it's good for you. And one of the inputs to that is, what, how many cents on the dollar do you think you're going to get for your investment tax credit, right? We know how much the investment tax credit's worth. We don't know how much we're going to be able to monetize it for, and- we never know until we do it, right? Because this is such a dynamic market with so, so much variability. And so you essentially guess at what the value of the tax credit is. And if you're right, you make a little bit of money. And if you're wrong, you lose a little bit of money. And like the better and better you get at forecasting this, I guess, like the tighter your model gets, but it's still like a huge driver of uncertainty, right? And so, you know, look, I think The biggest thing I was advocating for when it came to tax credits in the IRA was a mechanism known as direct pay, which I still think is crazy that there was opposition to, right? Which is basically like, look, like you can either have this in the form of a tax credit or you can have this in the form of cash at maybe like 80 cents on the dollar or 90 cents the dollar. It never got far enough that we were having like serious conversations about what that ratio should be. But at the end of the day, right, like that would have been the mechanism that allowed a lot of folks in the U.S. to think about this more clearly and like actually do these deals with less risk and less uncertainty. That didn't happen, right? So like whatever, it is what it is. That's behind us. The question now is like, how do we create a tax equity market moving forward that's more predictable and fairer so that like people who are looking at projects that they have to start today? We aren't going to have a tax credit on for two years know how much that tax credit's worth. Right. And, and I think if we don't fix that, um, it's going to really limit the number of developers that are going to be able to come into the space and build profitable businesses, which in my mind is not to anyone's benefit.
0: So much less fun than talking about microgrids, though.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot less fun and it's a lot more boring and it's also super important. Right. And yeah. I think that's where, you know, that's where like you lose a lot of people. I mean, we're lucky. Like, You know the the like the guy who runs our investment team. His name is Julian Torres. Um, awesome guy, huge nerd, right? And he (laughs) likes going to things like you know tax conferences and like talking to people about like different ways to like get you know seventy seven cents instead of seventy five cents and stuff like that. Uh, That is definitely not my jam. But like, yeah, I bet those
0: debriefs are riveting.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, the, re- the reality of the situation is if you're going to build a clean tech company in 2023, um, you need to be very, very sophisticated about the way the markets work. And a huge piece of that is tax equity. Yeah. And so you have to have someone like that on the team who really understands this stuff. And look, man, like at the end of the day, right, our engineering team is very, very innovative. Our finance team is equally in, as innovative in different ways, and and that's one of the reasons we're growing. Right, is not just because like we're building cool, you know, microgrids, but also because we're coming up with new and novel ways to to finance them. Right, and and uh, so it's it's like you know an essential part of this business. Well, and I
0: make the comment all the time on on this podcast. I made it to you in a in a separate call that like the vast majority of of clean tech and clean infrastructure companies I hate the word platform I think it's so stupid um are led by finance and bankers you know like and there's there's a reason for that and you mentioned it and and you guys have that at the top too um like how involved is is your CEO in in these kinds of issues and you know navigating this just financial like maze that you've described
1: yeah no I mean look so so um Ryan Goodman is the CEO of our company is like uh a brilliant business person, right? Um, And and I think, you know, really for the first like four or five years of our company, he kind of was the CEO and the CFO, right? And a lot of what he spent his time on was the financial side of the business. Um, You know, of our five founding team members, he is like seven standard deviations better than (laughs) any of us um, when, when it comes to understanding like the financial side of this business and the markets and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, subsequently, right. Julian came in and we now have like a whole finance team and a lot of people that work on this, but I would say like still today, probably at least 50% of Ryan's time is spent on finance, you know, project finance broadly, but a huge portion of that is tax equity monetization. Right. And like, look in an ideal world, do I want that? Like, definitely not. Right. When I'm trying to get on his calendar to be like, Hey, we got to talk about like, you know, what we're going to do from, uh, you know, battery procurement standpoint, or, you know, Hey, I found out about this new, cool, like chemistry that I want to try out on a project or, you know, Hey, we have an opportunity to do like an electrolysis project and like use hydrogen. Like, what do you think about that? Those are the conversations I want to have with them all the time. Right. And I think a lot of times the answer is like, I can't because like, I've got a meeting about raising debt or like monetizing tax credits. (laughs) And, um, and so, yeah, look, I think like the reality of the situation is that this is exceptionally complicated. And I think, you know, ultimately when I think about it, if you're trying to start a clean tech company, you kind of got to be good at five things, right? You got to be good at like sales, business development. You got to be good on finance. You got to be good at the commercial aspect of this and making sure this is all papered and you're following all the rules and that kind of stuff. You got to be good on the technology side and you got to be good on the operational side, right? and that's like a very very tall mountain to climb and it takes a team effort because i've never met a person in this industry that's good at all those things um it's like almost impossible to be have one person be good at all that stuff so you know ultimately this is a team game right you got to surround yourself with people who have uh you know complement you but also address your weaknesses and um i think you have to approach it like that like you can't you don't see a lot of successful clean tech companies that are fa- clean tech companies that are founded by one person. Yeah, right. That's a good point. It happens; it's pretty rare. Um, but you know, really, when you look at how a lot of the more successful startups, just in energy transition companies broadly, look, it's like very, very, very much a team effort that requires coordination between experts and a lot of different disciplines.
0: Yeah, we had a conversation on the um, Texas Power podcast, which is a, a sister podcast to this one yeah. uh, with Tim Latimer at uh, at Fervo Energy. And that similar story is that, yeah. you know, the complement of the the more development finance background with that technologist was what, you know, the perfect pathway for for them to figure out breaking into an entirely new space, similar to what you guys have done on the microgrid side. And you're you have this, you know, self-deprecating tone to you just to validate the Tim, not a dumb guy. I mean, you did get an MBA from Stanford. So like, you're not a dumb guy, but I, I do appreciate it.
1: Yeah. By the, by the way, as did Tim Latimer and like, uh, you know, that, like Fervo is one of my favorite companies and it's like very cool inspiring guy. Yeah. Watch. Um, but look, I think, I think that's kind of like, you know, again, getting back to the point about lowering barriers to entry, right. It's like, I've been following Tim Latimer for a long time and like, He's one of the smartest people in this industry I've ever met. He has an amazing team. He has a great network. As far as I can tell, like, and I'm not like intimately involved in, in Fervo or anything, but as far as I could tell, he's made like all the right moves. And there was still a time like two, three years ago, when I was like, Yeah, I just don't see it. Like I don't see how you're going to convince anyone to let you build a geothermal plant anywhere around where you want to build it. And then look, like subsequently he's you know, proved me wrong, you know, a few different times. Right. And I now like, I don't know if I could buy a stock in Fervo now, I would definitely do it. But, you know, that's how hard this stuff is. Right. Like you can have, you know, like a really good team. You can have like an awesome founder. You can be thinking about all this stuff the right way. And there are just like systemic problems that can still, you know, make success very improbable. And so look, I think to date. Right. That's just been like part of the game when you get into climate tech, right, is like if you're going to be an entrepreneur in this space, you have to understand that like you're probably going to fail, right? And like when I say probably, like, I don't know, 98% chance that you're going to fail. Um, But if you succeed, like, you know, there's a lot of upside, right? That's kind of been like the bet that we've all made with ourselves. And, And look, I think if we really want to scale this industry, it can't be 98%, right? It just can't be. You got like it's you you can't rely on people making like crazy bets in order to get where we need to be. You have to create an infrastructure and an ecosystem that makes it at least a valid trade-off, right? At least like a rational thing for people to do. And look, right now today, it's irrational to start a clean tech company. It's irrational. And again, I, I think there's like a limit to what we can do. Well, that remains the case, but you know, we're trending in the right direction, whether, you know, how fast that trend line is going is, is a subject of debate.
0: Well, Tim, Hey, this is a lot longer than we normally go. And I think longer than I booked on your calendar. I, I really <laughs> enjoyed the the conversation. I know our audience will too. So thanks for joining the fact of this podcast.
1: Hey, th- thanks so much for having me, John. And no one has ever accused me of being short winded. So I apologize <laughs> for messing up the programming. No, but they, in, in all seriousness, man, this is great what you're doing. And, uh, Yeah, I I really appreciate it. And if anyone has any questions about microgrids or distributed energy, um, you know, let me know. I'd be be happy to chat with you. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, and when this is publishing, I think Distributech International will be starting. So go find uh, Scale Microgrids on the floor.
1: Yeah, there we go. Rock and roll. We'll see you in San Diego.
0: Thanks again to Tim Hayde for joining the podcast. Factor This is a production of Renewable Energy World and Clarion Energy. Join us every Monday as we break down solar's most important topics with industry leaders who actually move the needle. And please leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the Interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.